Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is one of those passages of Scripture that if you've hung around churches long enough or if you've gone to enough weddings, then you've heard more than once. It's one of those passages from Paul that can surprise you, not only with its linguistic brilliance and its poetic brilliance, uh, which shouldn't surprise you because Paul had a way with words, but also with its deep insight. In the modern Western world, we often talk about love as if it were an amorphous and squishy mass. A lot of people don't like to talk about love because, well, quite frankly, they don't like dealing with emotions, or at least they don't like dealing with strong emotions. And, and along with jealousy and envy, love is amongst the strongest of emotions. In English, in the Western world, the word, word love can be overused. We say we love something, but do we really know what we mean when we say the word love? We use the word love in so many different ways to mean so many different things that it can be questionable if we understand what we mean by the word at all. When I say I love enchiladas. I mean something similar to uh, what I mean when I say I love sunsets or I love Mozart or I love Star Trek. But I'm saying something very different when I say I love my dog or I love my mother or I love God. And it's not just the object of the love that's different. It's the verb too. We use the same word love, but we don't necessarily mean the same thing by it. When I say I love pizza, I'm not meaning the same thing as when I say to my mother, I love you. And I'm meaning something very different indeed when I say I would love to come and see you sometime. We use one word, a broad variety of ways regarding Preference, intention, affection, de dedication. And regarding affection, we can mean everything from a strong like to passion to self-giving selflessness. Some languages have multiple words for these ideas, and, and English does too, but we tend to default to this one word, love to mean a whole host of concepts and ideas. Concepts and ideas that make sense in the context in which we say them, but can often also muddy the waters of meaning. In the New Testament, in the Greek language in which it was originally written, Koine or Common Greek, there are actually six different words for love. Eros, philia, ludus, agape, pragma, and philutia. The three most commonly known words, and the three that we're going to look at today, are eros, philia, and agape. All these words overlap quite a lot in terms of meaning and emotive quality, but all three can be translated into English with one word, love. The first word, eros, 
means sexual love, sexual passion, and actually it means consuming desire. Interestingly enough, eros is very similar in its nature to what we mean when we say, I love pizza or I love enchiladas. It can be a consuming kind of love, fueled by desire to have, to possess, to own, or in the case of food, to eat. It's typified by possessiveness. And in the ancient Greek world, it was viewed as a very strong negative emotion. We get the word erotic from the word eros. The second word is philia. And philia means deep friendship, the kind of friendship and affection that develops between colleagues, people who trust each other, sisters and brothers and cousins, next-door neighbors, friends that you have known for years and years and years, you've worked with for years and years and years, you trust them. It can mean sisterly and brotherly love. We get the city name Philadelphia from this word, the city of brotherly love. The third word is agape. And agape means selfless or self-giving love. It's sometimes thought of as parental love or divine love. Love that goes beyond the self, beyond the self-desire, beyond the self-need, to the needs of those of others. The best definition I've ever heard of for agape is to consider the needs of the other as being more important than or essential to your own need. I want to say that again. Agape is to consider the needs of the other as being more important than or essential to your own needs, your own well-being, your own desire or agenda. In Eros and Philia, One's own needs are centered. One's own desires, one's own agenda is in the center, in the midst of that which compels the emotion. But in agape, we are not in the center. Others are in the center. And we feel called and compelled internally to give to ensure that the needs of that other one are met and that our well-being is in part determined by that love and that care for the other, for, by that agape for the other. And agape is the word that is used here throughout 1 Corinthians 13. Not philia, we're not talking about that brotherly or sisterly love here. We're not talking about the kind of love that if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. No, we're talking about agape love. 
considering the needs of the other as being more important than or essential to your own needs. Agape is patient. Agape is kind. Agape is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. Agape does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Agape bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. That measure of love, that kind of love, the kind of love that centers the other instead of ourselves is the love that's being spoken of that Paul is writing about here. A love that comes from God. A love that is part of our existence and our being in our need to shower it on another, to center them and their needs at the heart of existence and at the heart of love. We can hear that selfless, self-giving, outward-turned nature of love in this passage from 1 Corinthians 13. When my father told me that he loved me on the night that he died, he was centering not himself or even his need to tell me that, but he was centering me by telling me that. Every time I hear my mother tell me when I'm talking to her on the phone or I go see her, every time she says to me, I love you, Greg, I know she's telling me that not because she needs to tell me, although that is true. She's telling me that because she knows I need to hear it. That's the essence of agape love. When Scripture says in John chapter 3, verse 16, that God so loved the world that God gave the only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have eternal life. When Scripture says that, it's agape being referenced here. In other words, the world's need to hear and to receive God's love, God's grace, God's favor. We, the world, are centered in the gift of Jesus Christ, in His incarnation, in His life, in His teachings, in His ministry, His healings, His feedings, His giving of Himself for others, for us. And yes, in His death and resurrection, God is centering us in love and our needs to be loved and accepted and included in the family of God. Now, when we come to the end of the passage, we find a very fascinating statement. It's very fascinating, especially for those who are from the Protestant Christian Reformation era frame of reference, where faith is elevated so heavily 
and so importantly. And by the way, I share that interest and that desire. The importance of faith in the life of a Christian and the life of any kind of believer is critical. And yet Paul, Paul writes, And now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. And the greatest of these is love. What does Paul mean by that? Why is love the greatest of these? It's because faith and hope, in their essential meanings, are fundamentally impossible without love. Oh, both can be approximated. Faith and hope are two sides of the same concept or idea, and they can be striven for and attempted, but without love, they are weak and will ultimately fail us. And the important point here is not so much our love that's in focus. It's not saying that we must have love in order to have faith and hope. No, it's God's love centering us that makes our faith and our hope possible. And it's God's love that builds us up and empowers our love for others so that we can center others and live by faith and with hope. Faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love, because love is essential to us all, because we are essential to God. Our, our well-being, our lives, eternal and physical, our needs, our hopes, our dreams, yes, our fears, we are essential to God, to God's will, to God's love. That's why we exist. We exist to love and serve God and love and serve others. We exist because God called us into existence so that the universe might know itself and might know and love God in return. And God centered us. In God's mercy, in God's grace, in God's peace, God centered us in love so that we might love and we might live by faith and we might trust God. When I'm dealing with families that are having problems, especially problems with their children, especially youth, I'll often ask them, I often ask the parents, what do you want from your children? Do you want obedience or do you want trust and love? <laughs> and there's always some smart-ass dad who says, I want obedience. Well, yeah, I understand that. My dad was the same way too at times. But really and truly, we want love, trust. That's what God calls from us, and that's what God has for us by centering us 
and considering our needs as being essential to God's own. Faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Allow the love of God to center you. Allow the love of God to center you in the midst of God's life. And know the love of God in the midst of yours. And then share that centering love of God with others. For the greatest of these is love. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Let me and may God speak to you.